The word slavery. What images come to your mind when you hear of the word slavery? Anyone? Chains, I heard. Oppression. Oppression. Image-wise, help me out. Picture slavery in your mind. What comes to mind? Is it just chains? That's the only thing? You just get loads and loads of chains? Okay. Southern states. Anyone else? Civil war. Sorry, say that again? Dehumanization, for sure. Anything else? Addictions? Bondage? Segregation. Segregation. Come on, speak to me, speak to me. Human trafficking. trafficking. Boats. Boats. Now we're looking at actual images. Sorry? Alright, torn skin. The word that, that, that rarely comes to mind, and there's a good reason for this, is freedom. When we think of slavery, we rarely think of freedom. But I want you to imagine a slave that is introduced to the word freedom. Can you imagine the difficulties that they might have in their mind comprehending such a concept? Freedom. What is it? What does it look like? How do I get it? Why can't I have it? There is a lot that the Bible has to say about slavery. Um, it's often those part of the Bibles that we like, to, we like to jump over. We like to pretend that they're not there. Um, you read Exodus chapter 20 and it's wonderful. The Ten Commandments are there for all to see. But it's almost as if Exodus 21 and Exodus 22 just simply don't exist. Because they might have a few things to say that, that we aren't too excited to hear. But in my studies at least, I've seen that slavery is probably one of the most misunderstood things within the Scripture. Slavery in the Scripture is what you and I today might call invented servitude. It was essentially employment. In fact, there were worse things than being a slave in the times of the Bible. There were basically three categories within society. There was, of course, the wealthy. Um, they contained, they owned slaves. There was then the free, free from slavery, yet not a part of the wealthy. And then there were, of course, the slaves. However, the, the hierarchy, it went something like this. Of course, the wealthy sit on top of the pile, but it was the free the free men and the free women, they made up the bottom. The slaves were essentially what you and I might call the working class. You see, it wasn't the best thing to be free. In fact, it was more desirable, to, more desirable to actually be a slave. Because these slaves, at least if they were slaves of Christian owners within Christian nations, is the Bible instructed these Christian owners very, very clearly, you need to make sure that if you have slaves, that you look after them, that you treat them well, that you make sure that they're fed. If you can, you make sure that not only when they become your slaves, but you take their family and you try and keep them together. Every seven years that pass, you make sure that you give them an opportunity to leave for free. They can, of course, turn it down. Such a concept would be rather strange if slavery in the scripture was just what you and I picture when we look back a couple of hundred years in this country. I mean, what slave would want to remain with their master? 
The fact was, it was simply like employment. In fact, if you were, if you were a free man, if you had no one by which you could, you could run to, no one that could look, look after you, then you were essentially in greater danger than those that were slaves. And there's a story in the Bible that speaks about one particular slave. There's a story in the Bible that um, if, you were, if you were at Cutler night, um, the night before last, I shared with you that I think that the most underread book in the Bible is probably Songs of Solomon um, because it speaks about sex and as Christians we don't, we don't have anything to do with sex really. Uh, we, don't, we don't, what is that, you know? Um, but if there's, if there's one, especially in the New Testament, I think it's the letter that Paul writes to the slave owner Philemon. Now some of you are like, there's no book in the Bible called Philemon. Yes, there is. Um, if you go to the book of Hebrews, it's just before that. It is a single page. It is only 25 verses. And I believe contained within these 25 verses is the entire picture of the ministry of Christ. Let's have a word of prayer before we break it down. Father in heaven, this is your time. We pray that you would speak to us through your word. Father, whether it's something that we read every day or whether it's something that we've never read before, Lord, we ask that you would make sense of it. We ask that we would be able to learn from it. We ask, Lord, that a change might even take place in our life today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, in verse 1, is writing, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house. Notice that in Paul's time, they didn't have great cathedrals. They had church in houses. They had, they had social groups. They had small groups. They had prayer groups, if you would. They just had small home churches for the most part, but it worked. Look at what it says in verse 7. For we have great joy and consolation in thy love because the bowels of the saints are being refreshed by thee, brother. In other words, Philemon is holding a house church and it's working well. The people are getting to know Jesus. The people are coming close to the Lord. But Philemon is not writing this letter merely to congratulate, sorry, Paul is not writing this letter merely to congratulate Philemon on his hospitality he actually has a request. He has something that he believes is extremely urgent and important. Look at what he says in verse 8. This is Paul writing to Philemon. Wherefore, though I might be much bold in Christ to command you to do what is appropriate, yet for love's sake I beg you. Listen to this. Paul says, at this current moment in time, there is none on the face of the earth that has more authority in Christ than me. A lot of the disciples have passed away. Paul is responsible through the work of the Holy Spirit for writing the majority of the New Testament. He said, because of my position, because of who I am, because as we see here, he's, he's towards the end of his life. He said, I could be bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is right. He hasn't told him what he's asking him to do yet, but he's prefacing it by saying, listen, if I really wanted to, I could force you. I could command you to do this. But he says, instead of taking that step, in actual fact, I'll beg you. Can you imagine working under such leadership? Can you imagine a leadership regime that has all the power to enforce you to do whatever they want, but instead they make themselves lower than you and beg you and plead 
that you would do it. I think for the majority of us that would really transform our opinion and our view of leadership. Paul says, I beg you, being someone such as Paul the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ. But what is, what is the message? What is Paul's plea? What is his request? Verse 10. I beseech or I beg you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds as a slave. He was in time past to you unprofitable, but now he's profitable to you and to me. And so I have sent him again, and therefore please receive him, that is, mine own bowels, whom I, ha who I would have retained with me, that in my stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. But without my mind, sorry, without thy mind would I do nothing, that thy benefit should not be as it were of necessity, but willingly. Now if you're reading as I were in the King James Version, your mind just probably got scrambled. Um, unless, of course, you do have some sort of PhD in Shakespearean writing. Uh, let me explain this to you. Onesimus was a slave. Onesimus was a slave of Philemon. Philemon, the good Christian, had a slave, or at least had slaves. One of them was Onesimus. And the stories have it that Onesimus, one day, it seemed like he kind of got fed up with his current predicament. He didn't enjoy the fact that he was a slave. He desired the pastures new. He desired the other side of the fence. He wanted to be free. And so legend has it that he steals from his master Philemon and then he runs away. Now in the Bible there is also the letter to the church in Colossae. It's called Colossians. And this is likely where Philemon was from. And this is, in fact, we know that this is where he's from. You read the, the, the end of the letter to, to the Colossian church, and it mentions that this letter must be delivered here to Philemon. But listen here, listen here. Somehow, Onesimus, this runaway slave, manages to journey over 1,000 miles. We don't know how, and we don't know how long it took him. But what we do know is this runaway slave, and I want you to try and imagine the odds here. This runaway slave finds himself in Rome. Now, Roman law, Roman law says that if a slave steals or injures their master and their court, they are to be punished by death. They are to be punished by death. They are not to be returned. They are not to be thrown into prison. They are to be punished by death. Or at least the slave master has such an option available to him. Onesimus steals from Philemon and he runs away. He manages to journey what some would say was about a thousand miles away. And somehow he finds himself in the very presence of Paul, who is the one responsible for Philemon's original conversion. Now we don't know how. All we know is that some way Onesimus is in prison with Paul. It says here, I beg you, verse 10, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. In other words, Paul is saying to Philemon, I am begging you for my son Onesimus. And you're like, how is he your son Onesimus? He said, which in time past was to you unprofitable. In other words, he was a slave, but he wasn't a very good one. He was costing you more than he was benefiting you. He said, whom I have sent to you that you would receive him that is mine own bowels. In other words, I've sent him back that you would restore him, but I want you to know that he is now my son. He said, I would have retained him. 
I would have kept him here with me. You can imagine why Paul being a prisoner. I would have kept him here so that, so that he can go out and so that he can do the work that I cannot do. But he said, no, no, no. Instead, I knew that the right thing to do was return him to you. Paul tells, and I want you to imagine the conversation. Paul tells Onesimus, son, you need to go back. He's like, but I can't go back. I'm a runaway slave. I cannot go back. He's like, you need to go back. You need to go back to your slave master. Well, listen, I'm not going to send you alone. Take this letter. Don't read it. Don't read it. Just take it back. And make sure when you get home to Philemon that you return it to him. After this follows what is without doubt one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Look at verse 15 if you have your Bibles. Philemon verse 15. For perhaps he therefore departed for a season that thou should receive him forever. Paul says to Philemon, I know this guy ran away. I know he injured you. I know he harmed your estate. I know that he made your life unbearable to a certain degree. I know that he disgraced you. I know that everyone in your church now is talking about this runaway slave. But listen, listen, I need to tell you something. Perhaps he ran away for a short amount of time so that when he actually does come back, that's where he stays. Oh, come on, we've all done it. We've all done it. How many of you ever run away from home? be real how many of you ever run away from home none of you have run away from home are you being serious and you guys must have had it good okay just me and the brother over there I ran away from home more times than I can count I remember one night I ran away from home for like the 10th time and I was so sure this was going to be the last time that I ran away from home. I went and hid in the tree outside of my house and stayed in there, fell asleep at like 8 p.m. and didn't wake up till 6 a.m. My mom's outside screaming for me. She called the police. They're looking for me with police dogs and I just fell asleep in a big tree. And I woke up and I realized, what an idiot. I went back, knocked on my door. My mom opened the door, just shocked. There I was. Probably looked like I was just electrocuted or something and walked in and went straight into the shower. Now, I'm not saying I walked in and, you know, didn't, didn't get my comeuppance. I did. Uh, thankfully, my mom let me shower first. <laughs> but I thought that, you know, the grass was greener on the other side. I thought I could run away and that it would be better. But, but after I had run away, I realized that, in fact, it was far worse. And so, and so Paul is saying that perhaps because he left for a short amount of time, maybe he actually had to leave so that he could see what he was missing. The fact that he's left might just be something that actually keeps him now that he's returned. Now, I don't believe that you need to leave the Lord in order to really experience how good he is. But for some people, that just tends to be the case. For some people, they spend their whole life growing up in the church. They spend their whole life knowing about Jesus. But then when they finally begin to walk without Him, they realize just how good they've had it all their life. There's this crazy paradox where those that are born Christian wish that they weren't. And those that weren't wish that they were. Oh man, you're, you're so on fire for the Lord. It's probably because you didn't grow up in, in the church. It's probably because you didn't hear all of these things from a young age. That's why you're on fire. Meanwhile, I'm here 
finding Jesus at the age of 19, having gone through 19 years, literally without any idea that there was a purpose for my life, that I wasn't just here by accident, but I was actually here by design. 19 years without that, and you want to tell me that that was for my benefit? That the life that I had to live without Jesus was in fact what I needed at that time? Man, I wish that I grew up knowing the Lord. I wish that I had at least some, some higher moral compass where I wouldn't keep falling into the same sins that still plague me today. I look at this verse and a few names come to my mind, names of friends that have found the Lord and then left. And I say, Lord, maybe perhaps they've departed for a season. I've written their names by the verse. Perhaps they've departed for a season that thou should receive them forever. Perhaps they've closed their eyes because the time is coming when their eyes will be opened and the light that grips them is so bright that they'll never want to close them again. Paul is writing to Philemon saying, listen, listen, Onesimus is coming back, but, but here's the thing. He's not coming back the same way that he left. Look at what it says in verse 16. Not now as a servant, but above a servant. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, especially to me, but how much more unto you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Some people criticize Paul and say, why didn't he just come out with the unction of the Holy Spirit and just condemn all forms of slavery? Well, he could have, but likely that would have closed every other door that was open to the gospel. Instead, what Paul does is rather intelligently, he imparts these principles that if applied, would cause slavery to crumble at its very foundation. He says, listen, if someone finds the Lord, then they are, they are no longer a slave, but they are in fact a brother. They are on equal terms to you. And so he says to Philemon, even though he's stolen from you, and even though he's a slave, and even though I've returned him to you, I don't want you to just take him back the same way as he was when he left. No, 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 no. You're going to receive him as a brother. You're going to receive him as a brother, Paul says. And then in verse 17, we find Paul at his persuasive best. If you count me, therefore, a partner, receive him as myself. If you truly see me as a brother, then see him as a brother. In essence, Paul is saying, listen, listen, you need to forgive this guy. It's your Christian duty to forgive this guy, Peter. Peter was one of those disciples that struggled with forgiveness. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 18 that Peter came to the Lord and said, How often shall my brother sin against me? And how often do I have to forgive him? How about seven times? You see, a lot of the rabbis, they said that you should forgive them up to three times. If you forgive them three times, then you've done your Jewish duty. Peter said, I can go even better than that. How about I do it seven times? Huh, Jesus, how about they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again, but I forgive them every time, even up to 70 times. And Jesus says, um, I say, how about, not seven times, what, what about 70 times seven? In other words, Jesus is saying, there's no limit on the amount of forgiveness that a person should be able to receive. 
God doesn't run out of mercy. It's not like a cup and once he's poured it out, it's all like he doesn't run out of mercy. He doesn't run out of forgiveness and it doesn't matter how great the deed was. It can be forgiven. Philemon is a runaway slave. His sins are punishable by death. Paul says, listen, forgive this man. But don't just forgive him when he comes back. Receive him as one that was better than when he left. Can you imagine if we took this principle and actually applied it in our life? Because let's be honest, guys. People wrong us all the time, right? They wrong us all the time. And yeah, we wrong people all the time as well. The simple axiom that I like to remind myself now and then. People are the worst. People are just the worst. We do so much rubbish. Harm people all the time. We're just the worst. But how often has someone done something against you and then they've come and they've asked forgiveness, maybe not as many times as you would have liked, but they've come and asked forgiveness, but you just can't see them in the same way anymore. Now, yeah, there's a degree to this that is understandable. If someone completely violates trust, then yeah, maybe they have to win it back. If they've done something absolutely dastardly, then yes, maybe there needs to be a few more steps. But what Jesus is saying is not only should you not see them the same way, but you should in fact bring them to a higher level, a higher standard. I don't know what society, I don't know what Loma Linda, I don't know what the church of God would look like if we actually took these principles and applied it. But Jesus says to Philemon, I want you to receive Onesimus back. I want you to receive him as a brother. But it goes further than that. Look at verse 18. Look at what Paul says. If he has wronged you or if he owes you anything, it's almost like Paul knows the behind the scenes story. Charge that to my account. All the damages that he's caused you, Philemon, charge me. All the pain that he's caused you, charge me. Whatever it is, whatever he's broken, whatever he's stolen, whatever damage he's done, put that, Philemon, on my account. I, Paul, have written it with my own hand. I will repay it. And he writes this intentionally. If you know anything about Paul, he had a blindness problem. When he met the Lord, he saw this super bright light. And from that point, he couldn't see so much anymore. In fact, he's said to have had a thorn in his side. Proverbially, essentially, Paul was saying, I couldn't really see. Oftentimes, he had other people write down what he was dictating to them. But he says right here in the book of Philemon, no, 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 no. I'm the one actually writing this. This is literally coming from not just my mouth, but my hand. I promise you, as soon as I write these letters, I will be the one that repays you the the entire debt charge it to me charge it to me what debt do you owe what is it that you've done well there's a lot that I've done I'm pretty proficient at messing up it's a certain quality that I've had for all of my life to rack up debts by which I cannot pay. I believe this is the very ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ comes to the Father in heaven and says, listen, if you count them as, if you count me as your son, then receive them as your own. Oh, you're not listening to me. 
The whole point of the cross was Jesus saying to the Father, listen, I want you to look at them the same way that you look at me. Yes, they've sinned. Yes, they've messed up. Yes, they have all of these debts that they cannot pay off. But charge it to my account. Everything that they've done, whether they be adulterers, whether they be fornicators, whether they be wife beaters, whether they be murderers, whether they be pedophiles, I don't care what it is, Jesus said. If they desire forgiveness, if they desire to be made new, if they desire to return and do the duty that they should be doing, then charge it to my account. This was the purpose of the cross, that God's love would be fulfilled in that the sinner would actually be forgiven and that God's justice would be fulfilled in that someone actually paid the price. I don't know what you've done. But Jesus says, whatever it is, I can pay. Whatever it is, however many of them there are, I can pay it. Charge me. And I love the way that Paul writes this extremely persuasive letter. He uses this literature technique that we call paralypsis. I do not say to thee how you owe me even your own life. I'll pay everything. But listen, Philemon, I wouldn't even tell you how much you owe me. I wouldn't even remind you, Philemon, that you owe me your life. I wouldn't remind you of that. I wouldn't even mention it. I wouldn't even bring it up in a conversation. I would never even write how much you owe me in a letter or anything like that. Whatever it is, charge me, I'll pay. I like to think of it, the Bible calls it being made new, becoming a new creature. I like to think of it as simply as this quick parable of a pig and a cat. Anyone here own a cat? Two of you? I own two cats. One's Pope. He has a white Catholic collar around his, around his neck. And the other one is Isis, because she's a terrorist. I have two cats, love them both very dearly. They're the closest that we have to children and they'll remain that way for a while. Amen? I want you to, how many, anyone, just for the sake of it, anyone have a pet pig? Yes, for real? Wow, okay, wasn't expecting that one. <laughs> but you all know what a pig is. I want you to imagine this. I want you to imagine that you have a pig. And you're going to find that pig where? Anyone know? Pig pen, right? And he's in there rolling around in the mud, just having a great old time. But it's this, the annual pet ball. And so you take the pig out of the mud, and you shower him down, you clean him off. And then you realize that his hair's all over the place. So, you know, you comb it back nicely. His breath stinks. So, you know, you brush his teeth. You know, you give him some mouthwash. He swallows it, but nothing's going to happen because he's a pig. <laughs> right? He swallowed much worse. And then you dress him up. Put a nice pig tuxedo on him. You know, black and white, little spinning bow tie cool little pig glasses and then you take him to the ball and he just looks great let's call him Porky and Porky's there and he just looks fantastic 
And you go through the whole ball and then you take Porky home and then you let him off the leash, you know, the pig leash that everyone has at home. And as soon as you take Porky off the leash, does anyone know where Porky's going? He's going straight back to the pig pen. And guess what? He doesn't care that he's clean. He doesn't care that he's wearing a nice cologne. He doesn't care that his, that his breath is no longer smelly. For the pig, the only thing that he wants to do is to go straight back to the mess from which he came. Because he's a pig. That's what he does. He wallows in his dirt. He enjoys the filth. I want you to now picture a cat. Let's call him Popey. You ever seen how agile cats are? How they can walk on what seems to be the thinnest of surfaces? I want you to imagine a cat now walking on a fence. Just prancing its way through. And then it slips. In fact, we should change his name to Pumpkin. That's uh, so my brother and sister-in-law's cat. He's kind of clumsy. Doesn't always, you know, putting one foot in front of the other isn't, isn't his natural gift. And so Pumpkin slips off the fence and he falls into the mud. He falls into the dirt. Does anyone know what Pumpkin's going to try and do now? His immediate, his instinctual reaction is to get himself out of the mud and immediately try and get clean. Because he's a cat. That's what he likes. He likes to be clean. He doesn't like the filth. He'll clean himself all day if he's given the opportunity. And this really is the picture of what it's like to actually have Jesus in your life. You see, what we can do is we can have this intellectual understanding of who God is, and we can accept this moralist approach that I'm just going to try and be a good person, but I know I'm always going to end up back in the mud because that's where I'm from. That's, that's what I do. I get dirty. I get filthy. I sin time and time again, and it doesn't matter how much you clean me up or how much you dress me up. I'm always going to go back there. What needs to happen is a complete transformation. And that transformation only takes place when you actually accept God into your life. He can make you that new creature. He can change your desires. He can change your wants. He can make it so. And listen to me, I'm not saying that you'll never get dirty. Hello? I'm not saying that you'll never slip in the mud. But what I am saying is you'll know when you do you can be made clean. You can be made clean. How many of you, that's your desire? You were a servant one day. Christ says you can be a son. You can be elevated beyond servant. Elevated even beyond brother. You can be a son of God. You can be a daughter of God. It's available to you. And Paul says to the Roman church, if you are a son, then you're an heir, an heir to the throne of God. There's a place in heaven for you. Now, we don't know how the story of Philemon ends, but legend has it that in the year 100 AD, Ignatius of Laota is walking through Ephesus on his way to, to some sort of Bible convention of the time. And he passes through the city of Ephesus and hears about the bishop whose name is Onesimus. It seems that that letter got delivered back. It seems like Philemon read it and took 
Paul's word and says, you know what? I'm going to free this brother. I'm not just going to free him, but I'm going to elevate him so that me and him are one of the same. It looks like perhaps I can't confirm it. But legend has it that this same Onesimus who once used to be a slave to sin led the church of Christ at one time. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. God has plans for you. Father in heaven, we pray that those plans would become a reality on our life. Help us, Father, to submit to your will. Though we might be running away, change our course, Lord. Bring us into contact with those who can direct us in the right way, on the right path. And Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus Christ. He who looks at all of our sin and says, charge that to my account. At the end of time, Lord, he's going to look at Satan. And he's going to say that that sin is charged to your account. These people have been clean. They've been covered by my righteousness. Enter in to the place that I have prepared for you. Well done, my faithful servant. Lord, let us hear those words on that day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.